there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer. Because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love, and this is not just ad copy. I truly believe this. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Why does it feel like Rita Ora is everywhere? Are Margaret Qualley, Dakota Johnson, and Zoe Kravitz Nepo babies? Can you tell the difference between Bryce Dallas Howard and Jessica Chastain? No. Can I say something about people who can't tell the difference between Bryce Dallas Howard and Jessica Chastain? You need to stop listening to keep it. I'm sorry. It's just not that hard. They take different roles. Bryce is bubblier. Jessica, more serious. And if you didn't see A Doll's House, you lose again. Anyway, you should check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and Bobby Finger, all about the least famous and most entertaining flavor of celeb, The Who's. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who-lebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, they even have a weekly call-in episode where they'll answer the most burning listener questions. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Each one is such a delight. These are genuinely funny people, knowledgeable people, and you leave with knowledge. You will remember who Kaya Gerber is. Let me tell you. Let me promise you. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Audacity app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with a new episode of Keep It. I'm Louis Vertel, but nothing else here is the same. I don't even remember Ira's last name. Did he contribute much to this show? <laughs> From what I remember, he knows nothing about game shows. Anyway, moving on. Uh, we have uh, two guests here today, uh, since Ira is off traveling. Uh, what was he doing? Covering the war? Yeah, we'll, we'll throw to Ira and Beirut <laughs> at some point. Um, no, today we have my very good friend, one of the funniest people I know, uh, Solomon Giorgio, oh, who's... Thank you. His credits inclu- include, by the way, everything. I- I'll just—I'll be at a party with Solomon. I'll be like, "What are you working on right now?" And the answer is three things. He's a fabulous stand-up, uh, one of the wittiest people I know. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Keep It. Thank you so much. I've not been doing much lately, which is great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've done too much. I've, I've done too much. The, the strike came in at the right time. <laughs> yeah, I will say, what's your strike strategy when you go to the picket? Do you? Talk to a lot of people. Do you talk to nobody? Oh, I walk in silence. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm the Lance Bass of the chance. Uh, you could not find my voice. <laughs> it's just you, frosted tips, and silence. Like and, I, yeah, just walking around, and then until until my legs are tired, and I go, you know what? It's time to go home. <laughs> got it. Uh, and our other guest is equally esteemed. I controversially invited two adults here today, <laughs> which will change the timbre of the podcast entirely. She is a fabulous critic. Just read her review of The Flash and Vulture the other day, but if she knows movie history back and forth, I would rather talk about Betty Davis with no one else. It's Angelica Jade Bastian reporting from Chicago. Hi, Angelica. Hello. Bringing fabulousness and Chicago energy to this podcast, which is not like the bear, 
if that's your idea of Chicago, it's much more interesting. You know, can I say about the bear, the one thing I couldn't get past as a, I'm from the Chicago suburbs myself, it didn't remind me of Chicago at all. I, I kept thinking we were in Boston or something. Yeah, it's like very weird show in that regard because it's, you know, I thought it was a cute show and I was like, oh, we'll see where it goes in the second season. But it's very easy to clown on the Chicago stuff because it doesn't feel like Chicago doesn't have that very um, broad shouldered sort of welcoming, slower pace energy that Chicago has. And then there's like little details that I'm like, oh, y'all bitches don't be knowing Chicago. Because I was like, why does he have a 773 tattoo? Who cares about that area? It's 312. That's right. what people care about. Yes, 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 yes. I still have, I rock a 630 over here, which is not legit at all. But anyway. Um, uh, anyway, I've invited uh, my friends here to discuss things, frankly, I normally wouldn't discuss. First of all, this movie called The Flash came out, mm. which as I understand it, is part of what is known as a comic book. Uh, a, co- a comic, and not like Rodney Dangerfield. This is like drawings they stitch together. I learned this all just the other day. Uh, Your reference point for a stand-up comic is Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> you know what? Still slaps. Yeah, no, I love it, but I, it's a great reference point. But yes, comic books, and it, yeah, it's. I feel like The Flash is a very good comic. It is old. It is like the 50s? Is the first one? Yeah, he's 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 a really interesting character who's kind of like maintained a sort of silver age vibe, which is like a a zaniness that is nowhere to be found in this movie. It's really weird the approach they took to this movie. I am still baffled by it. To be <laughs> we will get to that momentarily, and then we will move to a broader conversation about our favorite. Uh, summer blockbusters ever. And I have to tell you, I ended up thinking hard about this because I wasn't sure what I really wanted ultimately out of a summer blockbuster since, you know, my ideal movie is Rabbit Hole, which is not like that. (laughs) Uh, So we'll pick the criteria for that, pick our favorites in that regard. Mm -hmm. And then we'll invite these two very spicy people to pick Keep It's also, which should be, um, I'm really thrilled about. And then also Ira actually momentarily returns. We have an interview this week with star of Asteroid City and every other Wes Anderson pop-up book in history. Jason Schwartzman, who is a delight to talk to, uh, looks fabulous. A beard really works on Jason Schwartzman. I don't know if you guys have thought about this recently, but uh, we will get into that momentarily right after this. Looking for a podcast that caters to both horror buffs and scaredy cats? Look no further than Ruined, not the Lynn Nottage play of the same name. Ruined, hosted by horror aficionado and love it or leave it head writer Hallie Kiefer and her squeamish friend and co-host Allison Leiby. Ruined unpacks a different horror movie every week from bone-chilling slashers to spine-tingling supernatural flicks. And for those of you like Allison who are too scared to watch, fear not, Hallie will ruin the movie for you. That is a relief. Tune in to Ruin every Tuesday for your weekly dose of horror available on all major podcast platforms. Don't miss out on all the spooky fun. Since Ira is not here, it falls on me, Lewis, to talk about some stupid comic book. Uh, Keep on with the speed force. Don't stop till you get enough. See, am I I involved yet? Am I getting it? 
The Flash premiered this weekend, and response from the fans has been off to a slow start. The controversy surrounding Ezra Miller did not help. Controversy, we pretend like that was singular. It was an (laughs) ongoing, baffling saga where each story seemed to elicit a response from three other different people that Mm -hmm. made the situations all the more confusing. Um, He terrorized a whole set of islands for six months. (laughs) Yeah, right. Full Carmen Sandiego villain. Uh, is this an omen for all the other upcoming summer blockbusters? I guess I'll start this conversation by asking, what is your history with The Flash? Angelica, you just told us this was your entry into this entire universe of creativity. Yeah, I mean, for me, around 10 years old, Mark Wade's run on The Flash dropped, um, Born to Run, which introduced Wally West, who was formerly Kid Flash, as now taking on the mantle of The Flash. So my version of The Flash has always been more Wally West because of that and, like, Justice League Unlimited and Justice League, the cartoon um, that had the involvement of people like Dwayne McDuffie, um, R.I.P., one of the greatest Black writers and artisans in the comic book world. Um, So... I come into The Flash with a lot of love for the mythos and this character, which is basically the exact opposite of how Warner Brothers feels about any character in DC Comics that doesn't have the name Bat and Man in it. Or even Superman, they they don't seem to know what to do with. So I was like, this is going to be... I was already like, this is probably going to be a mess. But whoa, it was... So bad. I I'm still baffled. I'm like, why did they make these decisions? Who is this for? What is the point of doing a movie with the Flash if you're just gonna swagger Jack, Batman, and Superman as if he the character's own mythos and villains don't matter? I'm like, this is like a, a film that's leading to nowhere. It is so pointless. It is astounding. I mean, that closing cameo joke kind of told me, oh, this. This movie is just nothing. This is just, I think I wrote in my review, it's just brand management and flailing motion. (laughs) It's it's interesting because I would say, so there's a multiverse component of this movie as there are to, I guess, 99% of movies now. And it feels like each one of each uh, sort of tendril into another universe is really to lead to a quote-unquote in-joke for the audience. Like, oh that Batman actor is appearing now. Or, you know, it's like this sort of like self-congratulatory Ouroboros Mm -hmm. we're getting in where um, it's just like we've sort of uh, exhausted the possibilities of what the multiverse can offer us or they're just not is interested in exploring what it does. But anyway, Solomon, you're also a fan of the original comics. I'm a fan of the original comic book. I also am... Yeah, I'm, I, I kind of know a little bit about what's going on in the movie, which is them trying to bring together all the other <laughs> DC films <laughs> into like one sort of unit. Like, uh, isn't that, is that, was that the try? It, this is what's weird about the movie. You would think that's what yeah. they would do. If you're going to riff on the Flashpoint comic from 2011, the whole point is, oh, we're going to actually change things. But, you know, calling it or referring to it as a snake eating its own tail is the yeah. right way to put it <laughs> because it's actually weirdly mostly beholden to Zack Snyder in terms of the aesthetic, in terms of the world. And it's kind of weird how they don't reference a lot of DC Mm -hmm. things. Because it's like, if you're so obsessed with bringing back past Batmans, it's going to be very glaring that nothing Christopher Nolan is really alluded to at all amongst all these worlds. So it it just makes DC Universe feel very claustrophobic. And like the only real characters are like, 
Batman, Superman, and riffs on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of wild to me that the CW is doing a better job of bringing these characters together <laughs> than an entire film which industry. Is, like, it's... <laughs> which, by the way, it, it's worth noting that the quote-unquote production on this movie truly began around 2007 before yeah. the Flash TV series. So, the <laughs> basically, Grant Gustin was born after the conception that is of hysterical. what we saw on the screen. Um, but uh, something that's really worth talking about is Ezra Miller's performance, which I will say this. I, this sounds like I'm denigrating the performance. I would describe it as a pretty good Disney Channel performance, which is <laughs> we, you, you give this character a sitcom and his whole thing is he's a little bit annoying, a little bit um, can't stop babbling. Uh, and I feel like it's rare that, you know, a, a, a guy in a movie of this size is just annoying, which is a quality I ascribe that I feel like is a word that we usually lob at, like, females. Mm -hmm. I was reassured that they were making character choices that I felt weren't always endearing, which I feel like is a trap in these movies where they're so obsessively relatable out of the superhero mm -hmm. costumes that they aren't people at all. They're just, you know, mm -hmm. people we're not mad at. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, what did you think of Ezra's choices? <sighs> so... I think uh, most of the acting doesn't work, really, in this no. movie. So I don't want to put it at the feet of Ezra Miller. I think they at least make some choices that are kind of odd to the point where you kind of can't ignore them. It's not like they're just getting kind of lost in the scenery and the mm -hmm. background. But the way they play Barry is incredibly obnoxious. And the one thing they really fail at, which think is mostly because of the writing or primarily because of the writing is that none of the emotional stakes really work or matter. That's a huge problem in this movie. They ostensibly care about everything the Barry character is dealing with with regards to his parents, his mother's murder and his and his father's imprisonment. But the way Ezra plays it, I never felt the weight of anything that was going on. And I think a problem they are butting against as a performer is the film also doesn't care about these things. A glaring thing in this movie is we never learn who the fuck killed the mother. Who, who right. killed her? No, it's a who full um, uh, 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 scream type death where there's just a, a, a stabbing and we don't know what occurred there. By the way, I guess I should say we're going to spoil this movie again and again. We're going to get into a lot of cameos and stuff. So if you're particular about that kind of thing, stop listening to podcasts about pop culture. I blame you. Exactly. Yeah. You had, you had a few days. I, for me also, like, like regardless of the whole situation going on in Ezra in real life, I think it was miscast to begin with because the character oh, definitely. is like Ezra as a performer, is just a grim character. <laughs> like, and to and and the Flash is pretty like, pretty likable and like joyful, like goofy, and you don't mm -hmm. get that exuding from Ezra at all. So I can only assume that their performance was weird. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Also, I'm not somebody who goes and sees the Fantastic Beast movie, so I still associate Ezra Miller mainly with perks of being a wallflower. Mm -hmm. And I will say, in this performance, so it's a Back to the Future type story where. Uh, the character is revisiting the past and has to encounter a former version of himself and correct certain things and not correct certain things. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so you get Ezra and then younger Ezra. And I have to tell you the juxtaposition of these two characters, I think in particular is not interesting because the younger version of, of The Flash is just 
obnoxious teenager. You know what was giving yeah. for me? United States of Terra. Mm-hmm. It was just, <laughs> here, here mm-hmm. comes another version of myself, except this one, this time I'm moody and my arms are folded. Oh, gosh. You know? Yeah. No, 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 I do not, no shade to Tony Collette, who of course killed it on that Showtime series, but... <laughs> But I, I do feel like it's like uh, like the PE teacher te- at a uh, substituting math teacher. Like, what's going on here? Like, you're not <laughs> supposed to be in this room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have nothing to learn from you. Um, but yeah, as I said, there's a ton of uh, strange cameos in this movie that uh, some are successful. I would say maybe the best part of the movie is that Michael Keaton shows up as uh, Bruce Wayne or not Batman. I feel like I can only say things wrong when I'm introducing <laughs> characters in this movie. But um I, I, I never thought of myself as a super fan of Michael Keaton, but it's occurring to me now, it is always nice to see him. I can't explain it. it. There's a gravitas <laughs> there. It It is really nice to see him. And in a way, I think this vindicates him because, like, the way people reacted to his Batman for a long time was not, like, liking the world, but being like, why isn't... Batman fans are some of the most annoying motherfuckers in comic book fans. <laughs> they are. And I can't stand comic book fans the same way I can't stand cinephiles. If mm. you describe yourself as a cinephile, you're probably an asshole. <laughs> I would never describe you, me, or anyone I like like that. Uh, no one has ever said a kinder thing to me. Thank you so much. <laughs> but Tim Burton had to fight for Michael Keaton, didn't he? He did have to fight for Michael Keaton. And and so it's really interesting seeing him in this. I think he does bring a, at least a little energy, but I don't think anyone feels like they really want to be in this movie. It doesn't seem like they're able to kind of gain purchase on any of the emotional stakes or any of the comedy that should be there. No comedy either. You're right. I just, I, I can't think of a scene that would, in this, that Michael Keaton would be like, oh, I get to really sink my teeth into this. Mm-hmm. It really is just about the novelty value of he's appearing in this. Exactly. It is all novelty value. And you can tell that on multiple levels. There's the way they inelegantly trot out the Danny Elfman score in mm, crucial mm-hmm. moments. But the thing that really s- cemented for me that this movie sucks dog shit um, <laughs> was how they portrayed the Gotham that this future, you know, older Bruce Wayne played by Michael Keaton inhabits. It is bland, it is sterile. If you were expecting any like real gothic excess mm-hmm. because at all, you're not getting that. So I'm like, well, what's the point of taking the Tim Burton Batman if you're not going to play with the aesthetic world he inhabited? Mm-hmm. That's a big problem with The Flash. This movie visually is ugly as hell and has really no perspective mm-hmm. or point of view on how to experiment with the multiverse. I feel like the multiverse narrative has potential, but the way Hollywood uses it is pretty much a dead end. It's mm-hmm. not really for letting artists go wild with their imagination. It's more so, yeah. how can we extend this IP? How can we get people who maybe have fallen off but like the old shit to come back? Well, yeah, let things die. This is let Honestly, this is what happens when you let studio execs believe that they're creatives. <laughs> and they are not. That's just, like, not. They generally, they market, they, they focus group everything to death, and it becomes... And they don't have like one person carrying on a vision and they fire people that are like that are like their idea people in the middle of filming stuff. And you're like, what are you doing? Right. You are like you are making a three hundred thirty million dollar mistake. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. Also, also yeah. I think you're right. Like nothing about this movie evokes the I'm going to call it whimsy of the Tim Burton mm-hmm. movies. Like mm-hmm. when you watch those movies, like the steam coming off the ground, like the way like a camera would pan in on a face and Jack Nicholson would let out a cackle or something. Like there's no I, I hate calling it camp, but like 
you know, just something, um, you know, that like n- the naughty fun of those movies. You get yeah. the, nothing about this is naughty. You, it's no. like the, the look of this movie reminds me of computers. Like I'm yes. watching someone <laughs> at an edit bay work on this movie. That's like, yeah, the, that's the aesthetic value you're getting here. There's just no, um, it's flavorless. I yeah. would describe it that's, as flavorless. Is, like it's like I feel like with those Tim Burton movies, especially like they are timeless. They, yeah, you will not. You can watch any of those original Batman's, and they are forever. They they still like, especially Batman Returns. I think is one of the greatest uh, DC movies ever made, and they should try to find a way Agreed. to go back to that. But yeah, it's oh yeah, and you will get nothing on the level of Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie. <laughs> oh, let me just say no, that. No, no, you mean a performance that could body. Pretty much everybody. Yeah. There's no. Perf- it, it's such a weird movie because it almost feels like a fake movie to me. It almost feels like a movie that just like exists because they need to remind people that the DC universe exists. It it also doesn't really make sense to me because I'm like, you know, if you're a comic book fan coming into this, you're noticing oh they're they're name checking Flashpoint in a lot of ways, and Flashpoint, the 2011 crossover event, which led to the New 52. I do not like Flashpoint, but I find myself almost being like, well, at least they had imagination, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same sort of setup. He goes back in time, you know, to save his mom and he fucks everything up. But when he fucks everything up, the changes are dramatic. It's not just, oh, look, there's an older Batman in a sterile Gotham. It's (laughs) Bruce Wayne is the one who died in the alley, not his parents. So his father becomes Batman, and I think this is very sexist, but his mother loses her mind and becomes the universe's Joker, which I've always thought was a wild choice. And it's like Aquaman's a warlord, Wonder Woman is incredibly violent, and their kingdoms are fighting. It's like mayhem. And I'm like, the whole point of riffing on Flashpoint and using this premise is to play, right? It's to like go in wild directions and have some fun. It never feels like anyone involved in this production on any level had anything close to fun making this movie. Right. It is is so grueling. It is so gray. It is so checked out of its own story. And it's just, I don't know, it makes me feel bad for, like, audiences. I'm like, don't don't go see this shit. It's a waste (laughs) of your full attention. Hollywood is is basically telling us, oh, we think y'all will eat up anything anything because there's nothing this movie offers to anyone it's also like a key example of i I have this reaction to a lot of movies like this actually uh, it reminds me of marvel's jessica jones which was Mm -hmm. when you introduce this character and then you're it starts with some complexities and they have a strange past an unresolved past or whatever i'm on board and then once they get to the superpowers or what it's like then the blandness sets in i'm like oh she can Mm -hmm. pick up a car now i don't care you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like like this doesn't have poetic resonance to me. Um uh ultimately. Uh yeah, there are a couple other cameos in this movie that are uh fascinating. One concluding one that I was actually pretty surprised to see. But again, so you clap at the cameo and it's I, I guess I can say it is George Clooney comes in right at the end. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he of course has, you know, uh uh made fun of his own appearance in Batman and Robin several mm-hmm. times. Uh, he's not a fan of the movie. I think he calls it his worst work. He's made tons of jokes about the nipples in the bat suit, whatever. Um, he has one line here, but actually this, his cameo uh, reminds me of the weakest part of this movie, which is, I think even though I do, I am affectionate towards certain parts of Ezra Miller's performance, not a single joke lands in this. Okay. I, thought, I, I thought the the audience in this the, watching this movie was dead silent when I was watching this. Like, there's nothing Damn. 
hit. And I feel like that's the part of the movie where how don't they get that right? You know, even though another problem I have with these movies is the sense of humor is always the same. The heroes are always reacting to something, some gigantic disaster with that like gulp and a that's not supposed to happen or that's you know but it's like (laughs) oh my god can someone it's so multicam the humor is so multicam on these Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. did i forget a funny part i guess i didn't (laughs) no there i i love that they big bank theory entire (laughs) dc movie it's like (laughs) right no jokes you need a laugh track to get those those jokes to land otherwise they don't (laughs) No, and this movie could have used melissa roush i think she could have slayed it Anyway, so I guess it's like a don't go ahead and see this movie. Though, I, I for my own sake, I'm happy. I Once every three years, I make the trek to go see. I'm like, all right, what the fuck is Ragnarok? I'll try it. <laughs> and then it turns out I'm still right about my own taste. So right. congrats to me for making it through it. Angelica, you have a fabulous review that should be uh, inspected in Vulture. And I'll continue not to watch it to support you guys' <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I think you did the right thing. I think you did the right thing. In just a second, I'll be right back with Ira to interview the lovely Jason Schwartzman. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire... Michelle Obama to reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. 
Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the Black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet. Which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high coverage foundation. More popular than soft launching your boyfriend. More popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. We are so excited to have this incredible artist with us today. I don't even know which of his 100 projects that we're going to get to today, but Rushmore, Grand Budapest Hotel, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. The list goes on and on, and right now you can catch him starring in the best movies out right now, Across the Spider-Verse, and Wes Anderson's new hit, Asteroid City. Please welcome to Keep It, Jason Schwartzman. Hello, hello. How are you? Hi. Okay, so watching this movie and realizing you have now worked with Wes Anderson more than half your life, I assume this man knows you extremely well and has an idea of what you're going to bring to any given project. Do you have any opportunity to surprise him when you're working on a movie with him? That's a great question. I think, honestly, yeah, I think that uh, we've worked together like more than half my life. I don't know anyone else, I don't think, really, besides someone in my family that I've that I've known for that long. It's so, it's so rare. And to be able to also work with that person, it's such a unique dynamic. And I'll also say that, you know, working with Wes, like he, as much as you know, some, I, I think like he, um, this is a, forgive this really cheesy um, metaphor, but I was, that I just came up with because I looked to my left at my, at the street, but um, it's like a GPS sort of like, um, you know, you type in an address, and I've never pronounced it that way before. Address, address. I've never said address. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't want you to think I say that. I was, uh, but uh, you know, you do three routes. Uh, some, you know, the longer way, blah, 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 but they're all going to this way, and it's a line on a on a on a phone or a map. You know, and it's right turn here, left. That's sort of what it's like to to have this script and to begin to work with West. But the walking, the trip, the the actual steps you take, you to walk three blocks is different than to look at three blocks from above. And so that's the stuff that is intent. You have no idea what's going to happen. So I think working with Wes is like, that's the great thing. It's like, trust that this, this person has some directions. They know where they want to go. And they've done all this work to find this is the best way. Trust me, we're going to go down this avenue. We'll do this, this way. But what happens along that walk? Who do you bump into? Do you tie your shoes? Is, do you walk by a broken light? I think that's all the stuff that he wants to have happen and that he, that's why he invites these, uh, I think, incredible actors to come uh, participate in the movie because he wants, you know, he, he encourages that. And he's like, that's what he's hoping for. He doesn't want what he, 
every time I've tried to do something for Wes that I, that I think this is what he wants, I've always been wrong. Hmm. That's so interesting, too, because I feel like this Asteroid City in particular is um, so interesting for a West film because, you know, it's taking place in sort of two different worlds. Right. You have the black and white stuff, which is the, you know, the theater troupe, uh, which I would suppose sort of mirrors what it's like to work with Wes um, on a project. I guess, what was it, what's it like when you are coming in just as an actor? with him and then also you've collaborated with him to some extent on some of the other projects that you've mm-hmm. done with Wes. Well, I could say that um it's the I think there's a consistency or a continuity about Wes um that uh I just I don't know anyone that works harder um and does it in their own way. It's not a I know people you can work hard in different ways, but you know the the prototypical image, at least that I flashed to, of like someone who works really, really hard, is kind of kinetics, calling, moving, you know, like coffee. You know, it's it's not that uh, with what it's, but it's just constant, and it's because he loves it. So it's instead of like uh, doing something once a week because it's good for you, or you have to. You do a little bit of it all day long because um, because it sustains you. And he just works slowly and longer than anyone and cares more than anyone. It's all sort of the same uh, feeling, which is that, um, you know, I think when you're, when we've worked together on scripts and things, um, it's really fun and really interesting to watch that process because you're there, you know, essentially you're trying to do the same thing, which is help this person realize what they are getting at what they're after and i think that's what's great about wes is that i i you know he's not he doesn't make a movie because he knows all about it or write something because he knows all about it i found that he's very like it's always coming from a much more curious place so the writing is kind of investigation to something he's interested in and learning about and that continues into the onset um approach so um it's kind of similar in a way except you know on one of them you're on a film set and the other one you're you know by yourself i would say but like when we work together on scripts it's so fun because we act out all the scenes and we play the parts i mean it's not that different it's just three of us and no cameras Something very specific about Wes Anderson, though, is I feel like maybe more than any other director, there's a musical sense of the dialogue in almost all the movies he does nowadays. And I feel like when you're on the set, you must be able to hear kind of the metronome of the movie as you're filming it. Does that mean you are doing a ton of takes to make sure you get that rhythm exactly right? Because I'm sure I I can just picture him watching and knowing, you know, he's like J.K. Simmons in Whiplash, you know, not my tempo. Do it again, Jason. What I've observed or felt is that there is like a natural rhythm to just a conversation or, you know, that all that kind of um, uh, talking over each other and when, and by the way, Zoom, I mean, this whole thing is, it's so interesting how we now, Things are highlighted when the person st- we can see when we're talking over someone, and um, so I think that uh, with West too, it's um, there's definitely like a. It's important to know like the um, 
the the beat the the BPM in a way like what is you know what is the um what is the tempo but the great thing about Wes is like he's open to you know hearing like figuring it out but on a movie like this there's so many people so many scenes and um it's like I I think it would be sort of like and and not everyone's together it's very it's little stories that are connecting and so you know, even though we're there watching each other and supporting each other, you don't, you know, you're also worrying about your scenes and thinking. And so you, you know, your job is to be responsible for your part of it, to do the best you can at your thing. And then it will all add up to something is what you like a team. And um, I think that that's Wes is um, the great thing about a director or like a conductor or someone is like, it's letting each, letting each musician know where they are in the greater uh, the greater piece do you know what i mean because we're just zooming in on mm -hmm. you know you can just zoom in on your own stuff and so if, if you're just talking really really fast well that's not the that isn't that's not like the standard answer because well if they're talking you not everyone can be doing the same thing at the same time all the time and he's the one who has it sort of figured out if it is a piece of music the counterpoint and so you you know there isn't just like a given tempo but there's definitely that when you say music i think there's definitely like a feeling of listening and parts complementing each other you can't just and respecting that and not just like like going off on your own completely but it's like how do you play it that really is the the, the important thing mm. obviously your first collaboration with him was i believe your first movie which was uh Rushmore, you've never not been the star of movies. You're the star of that movie. And I just want to say, like, as I listen to you talk, there's a, there's a humility about you and a, a graciousness. The, how assured you are in that movie, that comedy performance is so unforgettable. I just rewatched it last night, was just loving it. The scene at the table with Olivia Williams and um, uh, Bill Murray and oh, Luke yeah. Wilson, just yeah. unforgettable. Where did you get that confidence? I mean, like you had never been in a movie before. Just it, it, it's like a one of a kind character, and you co were completely him. Well, I, thank you. And I, you know, it's fun. I haven't. I really don't know other than um, when I went to the audition for that movie. One thing that stood out was I remember Wes asking me an opinion about something, um, like about a hat for the, and. Um, I gave him my answer and he listened to it. And I remember thinking in that moment, I mean, I'm sure it's happened here and there, other parts, but that that was a defining moment for me in my life because I thought, I, besides my family or something, this is the first time anyone like who's an adult, even though he was so, so young, but is asking me what I think about something and like, is cares like about the answer. Like I had never felt like my opinion was really worth much. Do you know what I mean? Like it was like, and uh, I was like sort of stunned by that. Like, um, and uh, I think that sort of, and I think he encouraged, uh, you know, he loves people and actors and he likes talking to people. And I think, so once we got onto the set, you know, I was so scared. <laughs> and uh, I just remember he said, um, stick with me. We'll stay together and we'll do it. You know, we're going to, we're going to get through it. Um, and what a nice thing to hear in such a chaotic time of one's life or, you know, it's just all new. And, and he must've been probably freaky. I don't know what he was. I mean, how did he get the comp? I don't know. Um, but like, to me hearing that, I was like, okay, like it was what I needed. It was like a lighthouse. Like it was like, and I, 
And I lived by that. And so I think that any confidence or anything like that, maybe just because I said to Wes at one point early on, so does my character look up to Bill Murray's character? He goes, no, I don't think you look up to him. I think you see eye to eye with him. Um, (laughs) And that was such a funny, amazing idea. And I think because it was so foreign to me as an idea, it was really enjoyable to do. Because that was like, yeah. it was like a slight feeling of, ah, oh, this is a wonderful feeling <laughs> to like be taken seriously. And I think Wes, but, but Wes, I think was encouraging that by asking me questions and listening to me, it's already encouraging this thing of you are valuable and have an idea and are, even though if you're 17, whatever, you're, it's okay to state how you feel or be confident and people can take you, you know what I mean? Like, I think that was the beginning of, of that maybe in some in some way so interesting because then you play sort of like basically the opposite of that in a, one of my favorite films um of yours which is shop girl uh you know oh, you're sort of like you. more of an aimless character yeah who doesn't see eye to eye and then of course you have the whole yes. thing going on with steve martin as well yes um and his words too i love steve martin as a writer um too so it must have been nice to like work with him yeah as he had written this, but then you're also acting opposite him. Cruel Shoes. His book, Cruel Shoes, is a real important book to me. And um, his writing is amazing. His, his Born Standing Up is, uh, is an incredible mm. book. And the audio book of it, he, in fact, reads and performs. A little, it's a really great experience if you've got the time. Um, and yeah, he, uh, he is someone that has meant a lot to me growing up. And um, I think without knowing it as a when I was very young, but getting it more even now is and watching movies of his with my kids stuff is his use of language and the way he uses words is a distinguishing quality. And but he smuggles it in in such a you don't realize it. And that's, I think, the beauty of it. You know what I mean? And um, I feel like that with him, like he makes everything sound like. Um, you're just talking this, and then later you go, "Wow, he was talking to me about all these things that were so, you know, heavy." And I was nervous. I only had a few scenes of them in real life, but in the movie, but because we are, I guess, competitors. But we, but we, but he was there every time I worked, and I was so scared. I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to do. I was like, uh, maybe that helps with the character. <laughs> like, I know, like I remember when I went to meet him. I thought for sure there's no way this is going to work because, uh, you know, I'm not sure movies and music, these things do mean a lot to me. And I, I'm never sure how to navigate the telling someone that you admire their, like, is that going to make it weird? Like, is it, you know what I mean? And I just remember like Steve Martin probably does not want to talk about his work. Let's talk about this. And so we, we had to meet and talk and go through it all um, a few times and, I was like preparing for this meeting with him. Like it was like a, almost like I was not in training, but I was like, okay, don't say this. Don't say this, say this, try not to do, you know, really like, and I remember saying like, don't just talk about this movie. You don't be so free. Just, he wants to talk about this. He's an artist. This is where he's at. Let's just begin here. And I remember walking in and sitting down, I was like, Hi, I just want to say Three Amigos is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I meant a lot to me. I'm just really happy to be here. Like everything went out the window. <laughs> and I also remember I had written on my hand, like 
three things that I thought were important about Shop Girl that for the movie, <laughs> and that were like my I really felt like they were just like key bullet point things, but I knew what they all meant, and I and that was what I was coming to speak about. By the time we got to talking, I was so nervous. I looked down, and my hand was just blue. Um, and <laughs> it was such a, uh, it was horrific. Um, uh, and so, but it was a good lesson uh, just to be in the moment. Um, but yeah, he's the best. I mean, even hearing you talk about like the musicality of his writing and Wes, it, like I forgot that you were also in a band before you. Yes, left. yes, you know, yes. you were in Phantom yes. Planet before you became an yes, actor. Yes, um, yes. It's so interesting to be like, I'm in a band, but I'm like, I want to leave music and performing and be a performer in a different type of way. So, yeah, I mean, very unusual. Uh, I mean, it's just oversimplify it, but it's the truth is that I think um, growing up for me at least, like we lived near. Westwood, so near a bunch of movie theaters in Los Angeles. Um, so lots of movies playing um, in, in single theaters, you know, and coming out on Friday, going to the movies was something that I really I looked forward to it. And I would go with my, you know, my father, my brother. It was a real, you know, on Friday nights waiting in line and movies that I was seeing as a, at that age, I guess, were huge comedies or also big blockbuster that was what was available and playing in these theaters and i never once looked at a movie and was like i'm gonna be up there because hollywood like movies it was so big it was an event you drive to the theater big screen you know there was like something so uh big about it whereas music at mm -hmm. that exact time i had a cassette player and i could take it with me from room to room um i can't i don't know if it makes sense but it's a different, like, it became my, it was mine. Uh, just even just technologically speaking, the way you could experience it was just so much more personal and private. And that's why there's the, you know, cliche of someone just like putting on headphones and sit, like, I really was, it meant a lot to me. And so as a, I definitely, I, I love movies, just like seeing movies. I, but music was like, this is what I, I hope to be able to do because it, it was like very early on, it was like music meant everything to me. And um, so, yeah, and I, and it still does. I can need it. You need it. I don't think I've ever asked this of a guest before, but I want to ask this because she is your co-star in Megalopolis, which I've learned from Wikipedia, but how's your mom? Uh, oh. One of the great screen stars, Talia Shire. She's great. Thank you. Uh, she's amazing. She is really amazing. Actually. Um, the, the truth be told, she's, um, she's actually in New York, uh, currently in New York working, uh, here, uh, for, for the last little while, but I didn't really know what my mom did to be honest for much longer than you would maybe assume to not know what one's parents do. But <laughs> I remember, uh, definitely being aware when I go to friends' houses that, records books or movies television they were never on they were just there whereas in our house there's music playing in one room and there's like a movie playing and and, and there's books like and i remember taking note of that not just like oh maybe we are a bit are we messy or so no what i took from it was like i see that my mom is someone that like these these are not just 
moves like she like is like lives this like sustains her you know it's like nutritious um i remember clocking that as like a four-year-old i guess if you're asking how she is i just want to thank her for uh inadvertently being like uh filling the filling the space up with um you know the appreciating you know music and movie art and stuff and not not realizing it deep down that it was also just a wonderful um that i don't know just life lessons but mm. the way she did it was in a wonderful way but she's like a, but she can't help but be an actor i mean she uh she loves teaching acting too my son my mm. grandson my son he came over one day and he goes all right watch this he'd been with my mom all day and he laid on the ground and pretended to do something. And he goes, now that's that. Now watch this. And then he did it again, totally differently. He goes, which one did you like better? It's like, I don't know. Like, the second one was more real, right? Tally taught me to do it. <laughs> if, you don't move, if, you don't move, if you don't move your right arm. And it wasn't like um, to be an actor. It's because it's a sharing and enthusiasm of just studying life and people. My mom was always like encouraging us, like everywhere we, you know, be sitting someplace, you'd say, where's that person going? Like, what's their house like? What's their ride home like? How long did it take them to get here? Like, ever since we were little, she's always like, it's always like asking questions about people's lives. How does that person feel? Is that what's the last? When's the last time they ate something? When's the last time they had a drink? But and these are things that when you're like nine and you're at a mall, they're pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like if you have a friend who's like reading like a ton of like self-improvement books at one and just like everything they say it's like you know there really is no there is no being lost really you know it's like okay just shut up, just shut up. there is actually being lost uh we're supposed to be on this street we're not there and that is technically the, the definition of being lost um but so it was annoying but i'm just saying looking back and it's kind of all hitting me now because this movie is about actors ultimately mm-hmm. if you zoom out mm-hmm. you know it's about actors and and the work that goes into it and it's really like West's kind of love letter to to acting, and he he just loves watching actors work and stuff. And I think as I zoom, zoom, zoom out now, talking to you, I haven't thought about this, but I really want to thank her because that's like uh, without realizing that's all the that's sort of where I I think it became uh, like I noticed it um, in some way. Oh, I love that, and honestly, in a way, it's almost like you sort of mirrored her, you know, you're working with Wes and collaborating with him on so many films. And I mean, what an honor. I mean, it must have been so fun for her, you know, to have originated two iconic characters, Connie Corleone, Adrienne, um, and to be able to play them multiple times. Yes, um, yes, yes. And revisit them. Yes, you're right. Absolutely. uh, I never thought about that. But yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here, Jason. Thank you. Yeah, what a pleasure. So fun. So fun. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. 
Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday, and French fries are a food group, where flip flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling, and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. When Tillamook ice cream beckons you to the freezer aisle, which irresistibly creamy flavor do you choose? While you're thinking, try not to fuck up the glass. Tillamook ice cream, extraordinary dairy. This year, we have a return to blockbuster franchises with a new installment of Indiana Jones. I am not loving those reviews. (laughs) Transformers and the Marvel catalog. But what are the franchises and summer blockbusters we love most? Mm -hmm. Uh, EW has a great list of the 30 best summer blockbusters of all time. There's a 75 best summer blockbusters of all time list from Rotten Tomatoes. Type it into the internet. It keeps coming up. (laughs) Um, We'll start with you, Solomon. What does does a summer blockbuster mean to you? What do you look for? Do you like them? Um, it's, I guess, there's also, like, for me, like, I, I don't know if it's considered blockbusters, but it's those, uh, the sleeper indie hits that become big blockbuster movies. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of the ones that I end up falling in love with, because that's kind of what happened in the 90s. Like, all these, all these movies just became big hits. But also, I do love, I love the way, because there used to be not that many of them. Yeah. <laughs> there <was> like, <laughs> three or four summer blockbusters when we were younger. And they were just, I loved, the going to the, th- I love going to see trailers and for especially for during some so that's for me that's always like the big trailers the big flashy the the only so many of them and you have to wait months for them for you to even see them outside of the theater uh, and now it just feels like that's not the case as much as it used to be and every movie's trying to be a blockbuster right mm-hmm. yes it's right um, there in the budget yes but like I think for me like I will always like I just like Kill Bill 1 and 2 are my favorite the first one came Ooh. out in October the second one came out in the summer and that one Kill Bill Volume 2 was like for me, was just like, like fully, like waiting patiently <laughs> at the edge of my seat for something, and that was like the perfect blockbuster for me. I can't think of another movie-going experience I've had like that, where you watch the first one and then, then there's just like an extra breath before you mm-hmm. see the second one, and you had to see it. And uh, I liked the first one well enough, but I personally like the second volume a lot better. It's stylistically, it's insane. I love, mm-hmm. and Daryl Hannah got her character was built in like more into it, and I, I, I truly. Every aspect of it, <laughs> I enjoy, and like to this day, I still style myself off of Uma Thurman's uh, outfits uh, from Kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, yes. I will say though, I think my favorite scene in both of those is uh, Vivica A. Fox in the first one with the cereal box. Vernita <laughs> oh, Green, yes, oh. I love that character and I love that casting. She's yeah. so amazing in it. But also, she I think is. Bill, like Kill, really like is. Bill's death is one of my favorite. De- like the whole uh, seven mm. point thing, and he like he had to what like five steps before he died. Yes, mm-hmm. and, right. Oh, that was, oh. and then like the mama bear ending with her daughter. Like that's just it's I, it's for me. It's just, it's such a perfect film. It is. Angelica, what are your what's your history with, with summer blockbusters? Do you have favorites? What are your criteria? Go on. So I find the summer blockbuster an interesting form, partially for the reasons you mentioned about, you know, they were rare. We would they would be solely in the summer. Now blockbusters are kind of throughout the year. I mean, it, it's really intriguing. I have to shout out, shout out, uh, 
my first film I ever saw in theaters, this is what my mom tells me. This is what she says was my first movie. I don't remember it, but I think, you know, I appreciate that this was my first Jurassic Park. Oh, that yeah, is, really? Like, yeah. like a platonic ideal of what a traditional summer blockbuster should do. If you're mm-hmm. going to go big, go big. Play with the visuals. Yeah. Give us artistry. Give us real characters. Give us real stakes. Make it feel yes. like, you know, this world has meaning. And you don't have to make the stakes the world ending, the universe collapsing all the time. It can just be, damn, are these bitches going to mm-hmm. survive or get <laughs> eaten by dinosaurs? Um but there's, you know, there's a lot of summer blockbusters I like. I mean, Speed, that movie's oh, fun oh, as please. hell. Jeez, yes. Um, Twister, childhood yes. favorite. And we're I getting Twisters it. soon. Come on now. Oh, oh God, there's a sequel coming? Oh, my. Yeah, there is. <laughs> um, and I guess it can kind of count this year. Um, I really did like Across the Spider-Verse when it comes yeah. to a big multiverse movie. I think it does what a multiverse movie needs yeah. to do and that everyone else is kind of failing at. Uh, so I think the form of the blockbuster can be a lot of fun, but the fact that it has become the primary form that Hollywood thinks of movies through mm-hmm. is the problem. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of filmmakers and execs have learned the wrong lessons from the successful blockbusters of the past. They think by bringing them back and prolonging the story that that's what drew people to these worlds. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no. A lot of what worked with these movies is that they felt fresh. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. you know, it's had they a sense don't... of occasion to them. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes, they're treating entire movies like a filler episode. <laughs> it's really essentially what it is. It's like, why do we have a background story of a character that doesn't matter to this whole entire thing? But that's essentially what they're doing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it, it I, I will, is. I will see this Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny movie because I can't explain it. Phoebe Waller Bridge did something mm-hmm. or achieved something where. I have to follow her for at least 10 more years. I don't know. I'm a big fan of what she does. I think she has a genuine droll quality, which is so rare (laughs) in somebody who achieves that much success. You know, it's a a quality I associate with, like, indie comedies and stuff. And someone you have to really, like, um, explain to your friends who they are and, like, hope they bubble up one day. But she really (laughs) has... I mean, she's been in Solo. Now she's in uh, Indiana Jones. So, I mean, she basically couldn't be any bigger uh, based on a brand she established herself on a TV show she wrote herself. So, very uh, rare. Um, That said, if I had to pick a favorite blockbuster ever, I think I am going to go with Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I will say this. First of all, it has what Angelica just said, which is great characters. Mm-hmm. I feel like when there's a lacking... if You can't have um, a movie about set pieces and then not juxtapose it with a personality that is uh, sui generis and rad, basically. You know, like, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park has mm-hmm. three or four characters who I haven't seen them in other movies. They only are in that movie. And mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of attention has to be paid to the personality and not just the quote-unquote quirks the character has make them seem like real adults or real kids or uh, whatever find a way to get like banal but kind of in banal but um unexpected versions of humanity to put into the exactly. movie yeah you know? it's like it's it's, yeah. it's 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 so layered but also at the same time nazis are getting their faces melted yes <laughs> and it's like you still you can have these two things exist it's insane can't be uh like story along with like really well put together actors like it's yes like, yeah make sure that they have moments between each other that remind mm-hmm. us oh we're watching people like us the audience <laughs> in the movie <laughs> this seems sort of basic but uh, something i love about raiders of the lost ark i think 
the best version of a summer blockbuster to me is is all about the set, set pieces. There should be an Amer- American Ninja Warrior quality to these <laughs> movies where it's like you you've got this obstacle course thing. Now you got to climb up that thing. It's culminating with this weird jump off a mountain, which I do have to say, I think maybe the Mission Impossible series has graduated into becoming the best action series of all time. Just in I terms, think it's, you know, you yeah, can expect I, yeah. stunts. And then they always yeah. go about getting to them in an unusual way. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and pimp the, um, extol the virtues of Tom Cruise. I, I, find, <laughs> I find him, like, fun enough to watch. I'm not obsessed with him. But, um, and it always bothers me when people pretend, like, it's novel to announce that he's a good actor. Girl, he has Ugh. three Oscar nominations. <laughs> yeah. He's been famous for a million years. It would be bizarre if you weren't an he's engaging actor. He's been famous actor. longer than I think we've been alive, honestly. Yes, <laughs> yes. at least me, yeah. Me it, as well. <laughs> Yeah, Risky Business is 83. So I think I would say, uh, in, in terms of um, uh, not just a set PC summer blockbuster, I think Airplane Counts is a uh, summer movie, came out during the summer. And just, uh, this is a movie that comes up a lot in this podcast, but you can it, it's one of the few movies where it is unfair to pick a favorite part. Because literally there's always something else in the movie that was just as deranged or just as uh, unexpectedly cutting or, uh, you know, something you haven't seen in another movie. And I watch it every year. So in terms of something I revisit, Airplane would be my summer blockbuster. Are you a fan of it, uh, Angelica? Yeah, it's it's funny thinking about the summer blockbuster and how unfunny they are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, where's the comedy? The characters make quips, but they're not, like, there's not actual real yeah. built-up jokes. It's, yeah. We're in a very strange time. It, when Solomon uh, said something about how, you know, a lot of these movies are filler, I kind of think we're living in a filler era. That's mm-hmm. like a theory I'm kind of mulling over. Because it seems like everything is just a stopgap for something else. Like, that's kind of how I felt watching The Flash too. I was like, yeah. oh, the good thing's going to happen. Like, it it has to, right? Something good. Oh, oh, wait, the movie's over? Oh, 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 shit. Okay, I guess nothing good is happening. <laughs> yeah, your good, your good part is in another castle. You're like, oh, I thought we got here. No, wait, there's more to come. Yeah, exactly. You know what I will say about funniness in these movies? Harrison Ford, historically, has been a pretty good gap between the excesses of a summer blockbuster and then the funny character moments you need you, to sustain yourself through the kind of uh, audacious stunt build that I, I think we haven't had many Harrison Fords in that way. Like, I think the best part yeah. of Star Wars is his line readings. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think he's hilariously <laughs> not into this shit. In that. Yes. It's great. He casts some, like, he gives friction to things, which I really like because he just tolerates no bullshit. I like that sort of energy from him. And to kind of piggyback on something you said a little earlier with Raiders, I think Raiders and like a good summer blockbuster does something interesting with the human body through Mm. stunt work. And if it's not really showing the limits and wonder of the human body, then why the hell am I here? Yeah. No, literally, like watching Helen Hunt run from a twister, I'm like, I just don't know that I would ever (laughs) see her run otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? There's an urgency mm-hmm. here. <laughs> she wasn't up and she, she wasn't wearing a tracksuit in the movie The Sessions. She and Paul Reiser were not, you know, hitting the hurdles and mad about you. <laughs> Look, I, she made a great action. Action. It's, it is very weird. It's her and Nicolas Cage. I'm like, why are you guys? What are we doing? Here? Yes, right. <laughs> um, I think that is an interesting quality about certain 
uh, blockbusters, though, is like someone who doesn't belong in a blockbuster, oh, yeah. casting them, I think, automatically makes it more interesting. It mm-hmm. makes it more like, oh, look, Con Air, was it The Rock or the Con Air? The, I can't remember which one, but both of them are insane. And those both were like, I love those movies. But, yeah. <laughs> like, but Nicholas Cage oh, yeah. is the weirdest action hero of all time. <laughs> right. No, I mean, like, in like a year before he's in Leaving Las Vegas, a movie yes. he belongs in. <laughs> And then when we elevate him to these crazy movies with Diane Warren on the soundtrack, it's just like the strangest (laughs) juxtaposition ever. I cannot stop thinking about the movie City of Angels. First of all, a a movie we all bought the soundtrack to because it had that U2 song on it. It had Uninvited by Alanis Morissette and Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. And we had... I did not buy the soundtrack to that, but I believe other people did. Okay, well, let me tell you I did. And it's like, we, we had Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan together as some sort oh, of pair. Oh, Yeah. Was he a paramedic in that one? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sees a dead? Or... Yeah, yeah. It's, right. Okay. It's, I've... by the way, terrible. <laughs> Imagine remembering it fondly. But the casting alone, just, uh, yeah, that X factor of, why him and okay and mm-hmm. there should be a reluctant quality that wins us over eventually yes. <laughs> when it comes to these to, to these gigantic films. Are you a Nicolas Cage person, Angelica? I really appreciate Nicolas Cage. I think it's really rare to watch actors that I can tell actually care about film as a medium. He cares about film. He cares about his choice. He makes some wild ass choices mm-hmm. no matter where or what I'm watching him in. And I really appreciate that. And when More you, Nick Cage. And when you I watch an interview with him and he starts to explain why he made the choices he made, you come out more confused. You know, there is just there is a puzzle brain in there. Like there's a labyrinth and a bunch of smoke going on in the brain of <laughs> Nicolas Cage that you never are able to figure out. Which, by the way, sets him apart from. This is going to sound insulting, but like. Actors who are really competent and really good on screen and logical, like I'm, this is just the person who came to mind, Amy Adams. I'm happy mm. for those people, but I get Amy Adams. You know, there's not like, <laughs> she's not really giving me anything baffling. And I, I feel like you should baffle us every once in a while yeah. on the silver you screen, should. you know? You, sh- you should. You should at least surprise us. And I think a lot of times actors like Amy Adams get into this like sort of wheel of, I need to get the accolades. And to do that, I need to do something expected. I need Mm -hmm, to do what mm -hmm. they want. You should never give audience what they think they want. You give them what they actually need, Mm -hmm. which they usually aren't always aware of what they're really I know. It's it's I don't feel like there's kind of the two ways to play it. Like you can you could be like a Joe Pesci where you get the same kind of thing, (laughs) but you know it's gonna be great. But you could also be like a Gary Oldman, who you get something completely different every single time. And I think, yeah. But yeah, some people have been getting stagnant lately, especially the bigger actors. I'm like, so I kind of do miss that. With, like the, the weird castings that are actually do work. <laughs> Gary Oldman yeah. is actually an interesting example because once upon a time, he really would zig and zag from role to role. Mm-hmm. Like they oh had nothing God. to yes. do with each other. And then as the years progressed, got a little bit more mainstream, then, mm-hmm. then sort of found the roles that were more traditional mm-hmm. accolade earning. I mean, Darkest Hour is one of the most traditional yeah. Oscar movies of all time. But man... When you watch him in True Romance uh, and that villain, guys, that is not a normal performance. Uh, or no, look, it's not. and I, I mean, <laughs> just, it's that very is, jarring to see him in that movie. It is Drexel is the name of the character. I will <laughs> never forget it because it is truly one of the wildest acting choices, and it was. It's so <laughs> I, I can't even explain <laughs> the character. And if you when you when you find out it's him, you're like, that's impossible. No, right. <laughs> that is this truly is maybe wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are, could the credits be incorrect? <laughs> Yeah. 
Oh my God! No, that is. Uh, we watched that because we just had uh, Patricia Arquette here oh. last week. Fabulous mm. performance from uh, Patricia oh, Arquette. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, definitely underrated. Um, anyway, throw us your favorite summer blockbusters. I'm sure there are several we have not thought of. Uh, I didn't expect to congratulate Harrison Ford so much during this conversation, <laughs> but he really he is sort of the king of the genre, ultimately. We will be back with our favorite segment of the show. Keep it in just a moment. And we're back with our favorite and meanest segment of the show. <laughs> it's Keep It. Angelica, what do you have to say Keep It to this week? Well, <clears throat> we're recording this the day after Juneteenth, which has me feeling a lot of things about how non-Black people interact with Black struggle. So I'm saying keep it to every non-Black, not just white, because some of y'all ain't white, <laughs> non-Black person who I personally know is trifling with Black people sharing stuff about helping out niggas for Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and side note, all you people I saw saying, oh, you got to help out Negroes. I don't see no money in my Venmo, <laughs> and I know you're trifling. So keep that. Keep those little Instagram bullshit you care about Negroes one day a year, and then sometimes in February. <laughs> I don't trust y'all. I know you don't like Black people. You only like Black art and what you can steal from us. So Ooh. keep that. First of all, for you to address Madonna like that, I found very troubling. She has a name. Second of all, um, literally... <laughs> For, um, for for Juneteenth yesterday, uh, I saw The Flash, and I believe I did my part because white people should spend time in hell on Juneteenth. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think white people should suffer. A little bit. Period. Or like work twice as hard. I mean, just think logically about this for a moment. Well, that's you know never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they fall apart. <laughs> Did you guys do nothing for Juneteenth? What was, what was your plan oh. or struggle, or what did you do? I um, I was invited to a few things. I did what I love to do, which is uh, not show up. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and that's I think what my ancestors would have done and wanted for me. So <laughs> I took three good naps, and I I deserved all three. <laughs> that sounds beautiful. Our ancestors want us to rest. Mm-hmm. We are tired. We have been struggling for hundreds of years. We are tired. So what I did yesterday. I watched um, a Marlon Riggs film, Black Is, Black Ain't, which was great and amazing and one I hadn't seen before from his work. And I smoked a lot of weed and hung out with my great boyfriend. Black love, baby. That's right. That's actual (laughs) holiday behavior, by the way. (laughs) Think of, like, the ritual we do for all these other ones. Like, I just, I don't need someone, like, over a dinner worried. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just like it. I don't need like Catherine O'Hara angst because somebody was left out of, you know, a, a Christmas time picture or something. Anyway, yeah. good I for think, you. I think specifically for Juneteenth, you should allow you should allow yourself the day to be left alone <laughs> if you're a black person. Mm-hmm. Like you leave me the hell alone. <laughs> uh Solomon, what is your keep it today? Um my concern is that shoes are getting chunkier. <laughs> And chunkier with every season that passes. And somebody who's grown up in the early 2000s and has bad ankles, I need us to revert back to shoes that are not heavy. And I don't want another generation to be in early orthopedics because of our bad decisions. It is, I feel like I've, I'm, I'm now, like it's, that, like it's now getting to like cartoon level sizes of mm. shoes. And I'm just like, I'm looking at them like, what are we trying to prove here? I, I need to know, first of all, that's not comfortable. I know it's not comfortable. Right. You are wearing gigantic galoshes. If they get w- a little bit of moisture, is going to ruin your day. <laughs> Me, these shoes need to go back to a adequately normal size. And also, you're not caring about us with narrow 
narrow bony feet. I need I need a shoe that is. I'm just I'm just very concerned. The chunkier the shoe, the the more cursed your feet will be. And I think we need to be we need to go back to a to a time of responsible <laughs> shoe wear. When I think of chunky shoe wear and who and who should be wearing it, you better be performing groovers in the heart. Oh my! You God, know what yeah. I'm saying? <laughs> well, I think that's the thing. Like if it's like if it's a platform, like a chunky heel. Perfect. But I'm talking about just sneakers that are getting like sideways big, front big, heel like like first of all, don't you're not three inches taller than you are. Let's go back. Let's first of all, that's one thing I want to do. I, I want people to know what their actual height is and live living living it. That is sort of a thing of the past. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're right. I have no idea any given time. Especially yeah. if I go to something like queer where everybody has to wear like a Daria boot now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, so you're like 5'8", but now 6'2". Yeah. It's, it's very confusing. It's, it's wild. It is weird. Like, no, like it's, if you're, like, unless you're performing a, a drag performance in front of me, I think your heels should be reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I concur. Yeah, yeah. The Kleenex box look. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Just like, there's a reason we don't wear rectangular prisms on our feet. Look, look, K-Swiss died and should have. Should have. And, <laughs> and we do not need to return to that era of shoe. <laughs> yeah. Um, Angelica, what is your summer shoe wear of choice? Um, This is going to be surprising for some, but like, if I'm just running a quick errand, a bitch is actually into Birkenstocks. My mom got me a pair. Oh, and I was mm-hmm. like, wow. These are very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, I'm a, also a masochist who will hold on to wearing my Doc Martens as long as possible throughout the year, like a fool. And then there comes always a point in the summer where I'm like, this is too hot. What are you doing to yourself? Why are I, you doing this? I love uh, that. Shit kickers. <laughs> I, yes. It's just kind of like my I energy. I call them Garofalos. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. Yes. But I have a really cute pair of sneakers to kind of go full circle on DC comic stuff. These really cute pair of limited edition Pumas um, that are styled with art um, with Poison Ivy. And it was like linked to the Harley Quinn animated show. It's really, oh. really pretty, like really mm-hmm. rich green and and red. I love the sneakers, but they're actually nice. So I try not to wear them. <laughs> so usually it's Doc Martens. Well, let me tell you something. I wear Doc Martens all the time. Um, I also find it to be, they don't pay us in any way. I can't believe I'm saying this. I find them to be reasonably priced. Just like, yeah. oh, like a good shoe, sturdy, wear, I wear them all the time. I just think a boot looks good, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Me too. I'm, I'm brainwashed also by Tomb Raider, which I think mm, has made also, me think yes. boots are what I should wear for the rest of my life. And also, like, again, the most glamorous person who ever had an anthropology degree, Lara Croft. Mm. <laughs> No I've, shade, of course, to um, Indiana Jones, but yeah, he's I've, second place. I've never actually owned a pair of Doc Martens, but since you guys discussed it, I might actually go out and get a pair today. Where would you recommend? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, in, in terms of summer blockbusters, I cannot express how disappointing I find the Tomb Raider films. I, I, was, I was put on this earth to like a movie like that, a woman who gives like a saucy glare out of the side of her eye and then has to discover an amulet somewhere in China or whatever she does. First of all, I enjoyed watching Angelina Jolie learn to do an English accent uh, <laughs> in front of all of us. And she never nailed it, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> right. I'm sorry, to be John Voight's daughter and to achieve something even approaching cosmopolitan, yes. I have to applaud. Yeah, um, that's a good point. My keep it this week, yesterday or today as we record this, it is Nicole Kidman's birthday. Um, mm-hmm. I think Nicole Kidman now has established herself just one of the greatest movie stars who ever lived. She's mm-hmm. she's given at least 20 excellent performances going back to the beginning of her career, which is now over 30 years. 
my keep it is in defense of Nicole Kidman. My keep it is to the Academy Awards last year for not nominating her for The Northman. I think she gave one of the mm-hmm. best performances of the year last year. It was definitely a, um, a kind of a plum role. It's all about one big scene. Which, by the mm-hmm. way, nothing wrong with the supporting performance. That's all about one big scene if the scene is good enough. But anyway, it's you know, uh, it's Alexander Skarsgård on a sort of mythological journey. Lots of violence. It sort of looks like The Revenant at times. That movie. Uh, a little overlong for being such a simple story, but anyway, Nicole Kidman shows up and does the thing people always forget she does, which is be fucking twisted. <laughs> she is not a normal person. This is somebody who signs onto a role and she goes, "Give me three fucked up things to do." <laughs> Have you seen the Paperboy recently? <laughs> what Nicole that did that? Watch that Emma Stone will never do something that fucked up in a movie. When you're from Australia, I think, and you eat that many bugs, look up the video of Nicole Kidman <laughs> eating bugs, which she says she does. I believe it. I, yeah. I, I assume that's no choice. I, I feel like she just does it from your own hair if she wants to. Yeah, right. <laughs> She's like, what's happening in this wig? Ooh, a cricket. Um, I, just, I just respect the unexpectedly deranged quality of many of her roles. She, pl- she plays many conventional ones, too, but... Um, Routinely, she's very funny. There's, there's, there's some mediocre misfires in there. You get like a, the prom every once in a while. You get a nine every once in a while. But for the most part, very glad we have her. And still Rabbit Hole is my number one favorite Nicole performance. Do you have a particular Nicole you cherish? Probably Birth. Oh, um, bur- oh you, you can't just bring up the movie To die for birth. is always oh. going to be my And to die for. <laughs> to, to these die are, for, these yeah, are overwhelming choices. <laughs> birth is a movie that... Uh, a rare genre, you're wondering if it's a supernatural movie. You can't mm-hmm. tell as it's going along, you know? And you're like, is, I guess it's movie magic. I guess they could be tripping into something, you know, uh, uh, paranormal mm-hmm. here, but you're never sure. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, Anne Heche, fabulous in that movie too. Yes, I think it's a, it's a very intense movie. For some reason, I thought it was a good idea to show my mom several years <laughs> ago. And she was like, what the fuck are you showing? <laughs> it is a very what the fuck movie, you know? And also it's like, uh, it ha- has that indie quality where it's like an adult having a very strange relationship with a kid thing that only mm-hmm. occurs in movies of that size. Um, mm-hmm. uh, do, and To Die For, of course, Stifer. maybe my favorite Joaquin Phoenix movie too. Oh yeah, it is, he's, young, he's a young guy in it. I, yes. like, it's also like, probably like Matt Dillon's also finest work as well. Yes, like, it is correct. Such a, mm-hmm. But she's so, she plays that demented character so well. And I kind of, that's for me, that was probably the first time I ever see, saw her do a villain in a film and mm. like, and I think every time she does a villain, it's so like the only good part of the Golden Compass movie, is right? Her. <laughs> right. We, every once in a while, we throw her in something like the Golden Compass. No, in to die for it. That to me has the particular feeling of a role she had to fight to get. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe <laughs> mm. maybe there was some gay person in the wings who knew she would be great for it, but it just feels like the kind of role where she herself had to insist, oh no, I am a strange yeah. person, you know? Mm. That's, and like, look up her weirder choices. Look up Stoker. Look yeah. up Fur. These are movies that oh have a lot to God. offer in them, you know? Stoker is that girl. I just had a conversation with a friend about Stoker, and she was like, oh, have you ever seen Stoker? And I'm like... You mean the movie that has that really weird scene? Um, Angelica at just the held piano? up a, a postcard of Stoker. Yeah, like I made a bookmark of like I I saw that movie several times in theaters when it came out in what like 2013 or something. A little younger cinephile Angelica. <laughs> Nicole Kim it was giving me what I want, which is if you're gonna do a movie about mommy issues, that mommy better be intense. She better be yes. a little unhinged. And it gave it to me. I loved it. 
Take that, Francis McDormand. All right, I consider that a, sh- a shots fired, if you will. Uh, thank you both for being here. My God, let's just do this. Let Let's kick Ira out more often. We we accomplished so much more here, and with so many fewer accents. Oh, I was going to bring them in, Abby. <laughs> yeah, oh, you're, you puppets emerge from behind the table. <laughs> No, thank you. I love this. If you both would like to pimp where we can um, see your work, please do. Solomon, you first. Yeah, I'm Solomon Giorgio all across the board. I'm currently on strike as a writer, so please support uh, uh, the union and, and not the studios. Uh, so that's that's all I'm doing until further notice. <laughs> it is nice that it feels like everyone is supporting the writers. I can't really think <laughs> yes. of like some celebrity voice jumping out being like, they're all wrong or whatever. <laughs> I, for, for now. <laughs> yeah, right. There's, there's still time. Angelica? Uh, you can find me uh, on Instagram. I have a Substack, but really, you can mostly just find me at my main girl, Vulture and New York Magazine, where I have my job as a film and TV critic. And yeah, just uh, I don't know, Google me, Angelica Jade Bastian. You'll find Instagram and whatever silly shit I'm thinking about. But I'm not on Twitter. Thank God, <laughs> I am free. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if I just defended Twitter right now? You're wrong. There's a lot going on. Productive conversations, namely, that you're not privy to. This has been Keep It. We will see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Megan Patzel and Rachel Gajewski, and to Matt DeGroote and David Tolls for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter. Every day feels like Saturday, and French fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling, and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide, and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game-changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy.